Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look. Join me on an exploration of what makes the Elm City tick. William Tong is looking to make New Haven and Connecticut tick as our next state attorney general. He's running for the Democratic Party's nomination for the position, and he's in the WNHH studio today to tell us all about that. And a special thanks to Yellow Haven Hospital for providing support for today's program. Welcome, William Tong. It's so great to have you in the studio. Hey, Paul. Great to see you. Last time you were going to come, and then I slipped on some black ice on the way in and ended up uh, in excruciating pain. So it's nice to see you under these circumstances. Did you break anything? I thought I had because I was in such pain, but apparently it was just fractured or something. But I had weeks where, like, uh, I was pretty laid up for the weekend, <laughs> but that was a while back. Well, you look pretty good now. Yeah, yeah, I'm feeling good. Feeling good. It's nice to see you here. How are you feeling out? Are you doing, right now, you're one of the busiest people in Connecticut. You're involved in the legislature. Is it hurdles toward the end of a session? Is the co-chair of the Judiciary Committee? Yeah, and, it does feel like. you're uh, Attorney General. I'm drinking from multiple fire hoses right now. <laughs> you know, I have my most important day job as a parent. Um, Eleanor, Penelope, and Sasha, 12, 9, and 6. Wow. And I still get to wow. see them quite a bit, which is great. Um, and then, of course, yeah, as chairman of the Judiciary Committee, we just got a, a bucket load of new judicial nominations that we have to get through. Um, we have a second nomination now for Richard Robinson as our next Chief Justice, who would be the, the first African-American Chief Justice. I think it, it's a great opportunity for our state so that's going to, I think, start How's that on, looking? So, like, we had our first taste of Washington, D.C.-style yeah. court fights where all of a sudden the Republican Party ditched this guy, Andrew McDonald, who was a Malloy's nominee. There were suggestions they denied that had anything to do with being gay. But either way, it was one of these full-on campaigns to stop a lame duck chief executive from just being able to name one of his judges, stonewalling what we saw in D.C. What did you take from that, and why weren't you able to stop it? You know, it was a sad moment, I think, for our state, and I think it portends greater problems down the road and, and potentially a constitutional crisis, really, because we've always had a tradition in the state where uh, if a governor from whatever party nominates a judge, that if there are people in the legislature, the majority in the legislature from the other party, that they'll still respect the governor's appointment and nomination. And if there's person is qualified, and Andrew McDonald is eminently qualified to be the chief justice uh, of our state Supreme Court. He's held almost every job at uh, the uh, state, local uh, level, uh, in all three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial. Um, I don't think there's, frankly, um, very many people, save maybe one or two, who are more qualified or as qualified than Andrew McDonald to do that job. And so there was really no question that Andrew was up to it. And it really wasn't a debate about his qualifications, because we'd settled that when we made him a justice in the first instance five years ago. And I hope that it wasn't about who he is. Um, we had the potential to make him the first openly gay chief justice. And I do hope that that was not uh, the motivation, that the personal animus against him wasn't the motivation for stopping his nomination. I fear that it was in some quarters. Can I give you an observation from the hustings? So I wasn't up there. So yeah. I was in the back room. I'm curious what to hear from you what that's about. Two aspects of that incident made me wonder about the Democrats' ability to play as, as tough as the Republicans. So it was very divided legislature, and your even vote in the Senate. Yeah. Well, that could be broken a tie with the lieutenant governor, but one of your wayward senators, Democrats, excused herself. So one, I'm wondering where was the party leadership to stop that from happening? But, um, but B, you had a case where the most 
public reason being offered against McDonald was his role in pushing for the death penalty, voting in favor of having the death penalty be banned be retroactive. And because he had a role in crafting death penalty policy, it was suggested that that was a conflict of interest. Specious argument, but that was the argument. Yeah. But that was, so he was being cited for a conflict of interest on a kind of weak argument. But meanwhile, there was a legislator in the Republican Party whom we all feel very sorry for because he underwent one of the most horrific personal experiences that we could ever imagine. Our hearts go out to him, Mr. Pettit. But he stood up and used his influence for revenge personal revenge against a judge against McDonald because he was so mad that McDonald's decision prevented the killer of his horrific killing of his family to not be killed in jail, but instead we have life sentence. And no one stood up and said, you're talking about conflicts of interest. What could be a bigger conflict of interest and inappropriate mixing of the personal and private? Where were you guys on that? You Democrats. Well, I think we made very strong arguments. And as you know, Paul, and you got um, steamrolled. we got it through the House. Um, and I led Democrats in beating back the Republican smear campaign against Justice McDonald. The legislator you're referring to was in the House. And okay. uh, I'll so you're saying that he didn't we, succeed and he we, didn't prevail in the House. We did pass in the House. And I think that there okay. were much larger issues other than the personal ones, as as you noted there. The, the bigger issues were that... Um, I think a lot of my colleagues, Republican colleagues primarily, were second-guessing uh, decisions made by the state Supreme Court. And frankly, if we start going down that road, you start invading the independence of the judiciary. Which and we've that's, done in Washington. Right. And that's a straight-up – and I said it's a straight-up and naked violation of the separation of powers. And we can't go down that road. It really imperils our judiciary. And, and one more thing, uh, Paul, is I made the point that before we had a state constitution – the legislature was the court of appeal. So if we're going to start second-guessing the state Supreme Court, let's just get rid of the state Supreme Court, do it the yeah. way we used to, and we'll just dispense justice with 187 legislators. How do you think that's going to turn out? Have we crossed a, a boundary here? Is this going to be a permanent new state of affairs that New Haven, that Connecticut's going to represent Washington in terms of bipartisan dysfunction? I hope not. Um, I think I think one of the things that, that Democrats for a long time um, being in the majority, have the responsibility of governing, right? And largely that means doing the right thing and honoring the rule of law and the traditions of the chamber and the House, in my case, and also honoring the structure of our Constitution. And And if that means we can't play as dirty um, or, or play as rough, uh, maybe that happens here and there. But at the end of the day, I think we have a real responsibility to, um, to honor the nomination process. And I think the governor respects that too, which is why he ultimately decided, okay, I'm going to give you another nominee and we're going to hear Justice Robinson. Looking? What are you hearing from your Republican colleagues? I th- I hear generally uh, good support for Justice Robinson. Including among Republicans. Yeah. And, um, and also um, for the nominees that have been named, I haven't heard uh, any real opposition to this point and I expect a smooth confirmation process. But Paul, as you know, um, you never know. Uh, I thought it would be smoother for Justice McDonald, and it wasn't. And um, it's a really sad commentary about where we are. So where we are is that power is at stake in Hartford this year, yeah. the state capital. Yeah. The Senate was already evenly divided. The House got pretty close. So was it 89, 82 or something like that? 81. It's like... 87, 80, it's, it's like 80, so 71. Control, I got to get my math right. Control of both houses is at stake. Sure. 
as well as the statewide constitutional offices, including the one you're running for, yep. for Attorney General. William Tarr, what made you decide to seek the Democratic nomination for Attorney General? You know, I think it's two things. I think right now where we are at this moment in time, this is a deeply personal fight for us. Um, I've never felt like in my entire life that I had a target on my back, but I will tell you as the son of immigrants who came to Hartford with nothing, worked 15 hours a day, seven days a week, bang their head against the wall. So I could just sit here with you today. Um, and there are so many families that have our story and, and frankly, families that maybe were not as fortunate as us and face, uh, possible deportation at the hands of ICE. We've seen that in a number of immigrant immigration and custom enforcement. Right. Um, if you're like us and you come from working people or if, if you're a woman, for example, or if you just use the internet and you hope for net neutrality, or if you're a Connecticut taxpayer, uh, it just feels like they're coming after us. It really feels like many Republicans and the president of the United States have declared war, um, on you and your family. And so, this is really personal for me, um, you know, because when the president was elected, um, there was a spike in hate crimes across the country, a 20% spike, and we were not spared here in Connecticut. And Senator Looney and I actually teamed up uh, on the Judiciary Committee to strengthen our hates, uh, our state's hate crimes laws. And, and I did that because it's important to do, but also because... You know, I know what it is to suffer hate and I know what it is to have people come after your family and to suffer bigotry. And in this moment, if, if you feel that viscerally and you know what that feels like, and you can speak for the many, many other people that are in the same position and feel like they have a target on their back too, it's time to step up and fight. So how have you experienced hate? So I'm the first Asian American elected at the state level in Connecticut's history. Yeah. First Asian American state rep? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, and, and your uh, family came from China, was it? Yeah, my, my, my parents, um, my dad came from, uh, you know, southern China, Guangdong province, through Hong Kong to Canada, to Hartford, and he came to cook Chinese food. And he met my mom, who spent her first night in Connecticut in uh, the apartment building at 600 Asylum Avenue in Hartford. Her dad was an engineer for Colt, actually. And they, they met in a Chinese restaurant in Bloomfield. And so, you know, they came here. We've had many instances of, of racism, um, too many to uh, enumerate. And, you I know, mean, what's the status now as an Asian American in Connecticut in 2018? Is there, do you face prejudice overtly? You face prejudice overtly when you're called names and you're discriminated against at work and people are obviously denied promotion. You know, there are very few, for example, in the legal profession, very few Asian American partners or generals counsel. So we experience many of the same things that other communities of color experience uh, in terms of overt racism. I'm routinely mistaken for Senator Tony Huang because people just don't take the time to know that there's two Chinese American legislators, one in the House, one in the Senate, and we're actually different people. Um, and that's deeply offensive. And people make that mistake all the time. People who should know better, other legislators, lobbyists. Um, but I think what's different about Asian Americans and what's really hard is that in this discussion nationally about race, 
um, and maybe this dialectic right around race. And it, that conversation is often about, um, you know, larger communities of color. Asian Americans are invisible in that discussion. And that's really hard because there are many Asian Americans who do well, and there are many Asian Americans who don't. And there are many Asian Americans uh, across many different communities, Southeast Asian, East Asian, South Asian, who suffer prejudice, who um, are in economic distress, particularly people that, um, you know, there, there's, there are large communities of people, for example, in uh, the Southeastern part of the state who work in the casino industry, but also there's significant problem gaming uh, among Asian Americans. There is uh, severe poverty, poverty among Asian Americans. There's a significant Southeast Asian community across the state and including in places like New Haven and Bridgeport and Hartford. And um, in, in those communities, uh, a lack of educational opportunity and access because of language barriers. So in many ways, um, many of the same burdens and challenges that all communities of colors face, um, the Asian American community faces it too, but we're invisible in the conversation because people don't take us into account or don't see us as part of that discussion is whether it be people of color on the state tickets. So so Mr. Wooden is running for state treasurer. You're running for um, attorney general. I believe you're the only person of color seeking attorney general domination. I think that's right. So I don't know. Is that relevant? Yeah. And I think it's relevant for a couple of reasons. One, because um, it's an incredibly important milestone for our state uh, to have the first Asian American constitutional officer, um, I think it broadens uh, the democratic process and experience not just to um, Asian Americans, but for all communities of color and and minority communities to feel like there's an opportunity for all of us to participate at a high level. But I think the other reason why it's important is because of my experience. And uh, as I talk about my experience as an immigrant and the way I grew up working side by side with my parents in a Chinese restaurant – that resonates with a lot of other people. You don't have to be Chinese American or Latino or African American. You know, uh, um, you know, Irish Americans, Italian Americans. Uh, many people have a very similar immigrant experience. Um, people that came from Eastern Europe, for example, and it resonates with them. And as a Democrat, I think what we need at um, at the top of the ticket, but you know, in our constitutional offices, are candidates that resonate with voters across state that that have something in their personal story that others can latch on to and get excited about and be for something mm. you know part of the problem in connecticut right now is there's so much there's so much negative energy and people are against things but let's give them something to be excited about and for and i i, I hope that my candidacy does that all right and your candidacy is for the your william tong you're running for the democratic nomination for attorney general hotly contested race Hotly and uh, you're speaking right now on Dateline New Haven, your home for community radio, 103.5 FM, live stream at newhavenindependent.org and WNHH FM. So William Tong, um, we've had some of your your competitors for this nomination on this radio show. We had um, Chris Maddy, we had Mike D'Agostino, we had Claire Kindle. And they all, like you spoke about Trump. Yep. And about, and I understand how given your experience, this is an office you would see because you are an attorney. You have, as a state resident, co-chaired the General Assembly's Judiciary Committee. Yeah. So legal issues are where your experience lines up. What is it about the job that 
makes you feel it can make a difference in those issues you identified about the um, era we're living in with immigration, with net neutrality, with, uh, I would add, predatory finance and the dissolution of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. What about the attorney's job do you think you can make a difference in it with? Right. Well, the CFPB, which you just cited, uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, is an incredible um, example of what the AG can do. They recovered billions of dollars in in fraudulent uh, predatory fines from from companies, and now that's all gone. They're not issuing any new cases since Mark Mulaney took it over. Right. And what the Dodd-Frank law says is that state attorneys general fill the void. How so? And the the Dodd Frank law expressly empowers state attorneys general in, uh, you know, to have basically concurrent jurisdiction over a lot of these financial fraud issues. So I'm going to reverse back a little bit. Before I became chairman of the Judiciary Committee, I was chairman of the Banking Committee, and I was chairman of the Banking Committee at the height of the financial crisis in 2010. Uh, and we took on the big banks then to rewrite the state's foreclosure laws to help thousands of Connecticut families stay in their Is that homes. when you mandated um, that people have arbitration before? Yeah, it's the foreclosure mediation program, and we expanded it, and it's been tremendously successful here in Connecticut. Yeah, it has. You know. uh, and, you know, that experience, I think, really prepared me well to expand that work. And so... And now As, we're seeing a lot of foreclosures. They appear to be up along with evictions in Connecticut, in yeah. New Haven. What's going on? You know, I think we're still working through the effects of the financial crisis. And, and frankly, the financial crisis was particularly cruel to Connecticut. Um, right, we've been the last to recover. I feel like there's something else going on. I think stagnant wages might have as much to do with it, the shakeout in, in the workforce. Stagnant wages, and Paul, you also may know that I'm chairman of the Commission on Economic Competitiveness. Mm-hmm. So it's not just wages, but it's also um, as we replace jobs, they're lower paying jobs. Right. So we're seeing uh, as jobs recover that we're swapping out for um, jobs that don't have as much job security or, or the wages are low. And, and, and long term, that's not a good trend. And the studies, there have been a new wave of studies conf- reconfirming that people of color, especially black borrowers, get charged higher rates than yeah. people, uh, white people who actually earn less than they do. And off and get these balloon payments and variable mortgages. Is that a factor? Is that something you can address? Yeah, I think there's that. There's payday lenders continue right. to be an issue. There's also out of state lenders that charge exorbitant fees, and you see them on television. And sometimes they're run out of western states, and you can be charged as high as fifty, eighty percent interest on those loans. And the for-profit colleges and universities. The for-profit colleges and universities, and of course, a, the huge burden of student loan debt. On, so on people so in this you country. say that you're empowered by the Dodd-Frank law to have yeah. attorneys general step in. And we know that George Jepson, the current attorney general, has worked with other states' attorneys general to file suits against the financial industry. What what void especially, specifically are you going to fill if you're elected? What kind of suits do you see initiating that aren't being initiated now or that are that you're going to continue on this issue of predatory finance? Yeah, I think George has done a great job, uh, particularly with respect to the uh, National Mortgage Servicer Settlement. And then um, he also uh, achieved a major settlement with RBS. um, The Royal Bank of Scotland. Yeah, Royal Bank of Scotland. And so I think continuing to investigate um, ways in which uh, non-disclosure, frankly, uh, and people are... uh, being hoodwinked or tricked into um, financial commitments that they can't possibly sustain. That continues to happen at the residential mortgage level. 
you know, lending standards are starting to loosen up. I think we need to remain vigilant around that. I think we need to remain vigilant around um, innovation and financial products, right? And um, what what we're really going to see more and more of is state attorneys general across the country linking arms. So I look forward to working with uh, Eric Schneiderman, for example, in New York and Maura Healy uh, in Massachusetts and initiating these uh, multi-state, multi-jurisdictional um, uh, lawsuits. And, and I think it has to center since uh, Lieberman's days, the attorney general has become a profit center with all the suits we file. In the yeah. Center. I'm not sure I would look at it that way. Well, um, you bring in 10 times as much money as you spend. Yeah. The but, general. but it has been very productive, but I think that is a happy coincidence of enforcing uh, the laws and protecting and people's MERS, rights. MERS, the, um, that registers a lot of mortgages for those people who own in New Haven. We have a big problem with, slumlords yeah and and a lot of property you can't even find who owns it or often whom you own the debt to and we had an eviction we covered last week where the person didn't couldn't even track down through MERS who they really owned the money to or to prove they never got notice that to pay the bills anything happened that's about how we record in public records right. who owns either debt or property any thoughts on that how you yeah so that's that? a really good point i worked on that issue when i was chairman of the banking committee and you know, MERS is controversial in the legislature, and there's always efforts to make it more transparent. Here's what I would say about the attorney general's role in that. If there uh, is a violation of the law and there's an opportunity to initiate litigation or pursue class-wide relief because people are prejudiced by by MERS or the mortgage recording system or anything in the residential lending process, that's one thing. The second thing, though, and this is really important, what Dick Blumenthal and George Jepson understood was that their job as attorney general carried with it a significant bully pulpit. And as former legislators, they saw it as their obligation to go into the legislative office building in the state capitol and to advocate on uh, issues uh, that aren't directly in their jurisdiction because it's not the subject of a lawsuit, but because they have relationships in the building, they could go in and advocate for bills. They always had a legislative agenda and push that legislative agenda to give sometimes more power to the attorney general's office to enforce the law, uh, but also to push legislators to pass laws to protect people here in Connecticut. And what people don't always understand in Connecticut is that you don't handle criminal matters as an attorney general. That's, That's right. the state's attorney. Chief state's attorney. Chief right. state's attorney. Right. And each district, we have a state's attorney who's the prosecutor. But that you are the civil lawyer. You, right. give a ju- you give advice to the legislature and the governor about the law. They're your client, and we're your, you're, we're your client, and you also uh, press civil lawsuits. Yeah. And, you, and we're talking about that on Dateline New Haven and WNHHFM, your home for community radio, 103.5. And William Tong, one of uh, several people seeking the Democratic nomination for attorney general, is our guest today. Now, one big issue, as all the candidates talk about, is guns. Yes. And this uh, session, you are pushing a bill to ban bump stocks and ghost guns. That's your yeah. bill. You brought yeah. people together. In, and yeah, you, I believe you introduced that bill before Parkland. Yeah. Tell me why you're introducing the bill and what difference it'll make and what its ch- chances are. I think the chances are very good. It's not just uh, bump stocks, but also ghost guns. Um, you know, and I think what we saw in Las Vegas, we lost almost 60 people in Las Vegas. And there's just no reason for anybody to have an instrument that turns a semi-automatic rifle into a fully automatic rifle. Is that what a bump stock? That's is? what a bump stock does. It's a, it's a 
piece, you know, roughly this big, you know, I'm, I'm making a square with my fingers. I know we're on the radio. Um, they're also on Facebook. They are, we're on Facebook. So, um, it, it's a, it's a piece that you add that, um, that basically enables the gun to use its recoil to fire repeatedly. Which um, is what brought so much more carnage. And- that's right. That's right. And, and I think some of the folks on the side of the NRA are saying, well, bump stocks, a very crude tool, you know, it's, it doesn't make a gun more accurate, but it makes it more deadly, you know, and also how much it can fire. Right. In a short period right. of time. And also ghost guns are guns that, um, uh, are basically they're kits that are 80% complete. And if you go to ghostguns.com right now, you'll see that they advertise, you can buy a Glock or an AR 15. That's 80% complete. And you just have to fabricate it at home a little bit more to get it to 100%. Legally to own it, do you still need a permit for it? Well, that's what the law would say. The law would say, well, you would need a permit, but the law would say that you need to register this gun because once you fabricate it at home, if you don't tell anybody, it doesn't have a serial number and it's not registered, right? And so that, I I think, poses a huge problem and compounds the gun trafficking problem. Actually, uh, I was proud to stand at the Church of the Rock uh, you might have been there, Paul. I think you were there, or one of your uh, reporters, reporters was, was there, there with with Tony Harp. Yeah, and, and the legislators from New Haven. Yeah. Mayor Harp uh, joined me in announcing that legislation. I was very pleased last Tuesday to announce that Mayor Harp has endorsed me in the race for oh, attorney I didn't general. Know that. Okay, yeah, and I'm I'm very proud to have her support. But getting back to the to the gun issue, you know the the Did chair you guys of do any press on that. I'm sorry. Did you guys do any press on that? We definitely put it out by email and on Facebook. That Harp endorsed you? Yes. Boy, we would have published that if we got that. Okay. Well, we'll oh, make sure we that know. we're... Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you don't see too many endorsements at this point in the Attorney General. Yeah, you know, uh, we were very proud to have Mayor Harp. She was the first to endorse me officially as a candidate for Attorney General. The next day, uh, John Olson, the former state party chair, and DNC member and AFL-CIO president, uh, also endorsed me. Um, and he made a point of, of saying that, uh, you know, I have the highest AFL CIO rating of, of any candidate for attorney general in this, uh, in this race. So I was proud to receive his Chris support. Chris Maddie's gotten support in New Haven. Yeah. Henry Whistle, yeah so. I, th- I think all the candidates are, uh, good candidates. We have a rich field. Okay. So back to guns. Yeah. So it got out of committee. Yeah. Barely long, long stem winders from, uh, stem winders from the Republicans who <laughs> support it. But it came out with a companion bill by the Republicans to allow open carry of guns in state parks. Yeah, I what mean, I voted against that. What was that about? Why do they want you to be able to have a gun in a state park where we could see it? I just think, I, I guess people feel like state parks, um, uh, they feel like they need to be armed. We are an open carry state. A lot of people don't know that. Um, you can walk into Starbucks with a pistol on your hip. What's also deeply concerning, though, in this state is if a police officer asks you to see your permit, if you're openly carrying, you don't have to show it to them. Wow. And last year, I tried to pass a law um, to require you to simply show your permit, which you're required to carry on your person, but it was defeated in committee. And I must tell you, I, I, I tell my colleagues and anybody who will listen across the state, w- w- when you try to understand what the consequences are of a tied Senate and a very close house, or if we lose the majorities in one or both houses, this is the future that, that common sense laws, like you got to show your permit, which are required to carry when a police officer asks you for it. 
that those laws even get stopped in the legislative process How's because gonna, we don't have the numbers. It's a short session. How's it going to play out when this bill comes to the floor? I'm sure there'll be long speeches. I by think it'd be a long debate. long debate. You know, and I, I've spent 12 years taking on the NRA. My very first job, um, I had two jobs when I was a freshman. Justice McDonald was the chairman at the time, and Mike Lawler was the chairman. And I served on the committee, I think, uh, Representative Tony Walker was on the committee. It's been great to work with he, her over these 12 years on juvenile justice reform. Uh, but when I started, uh, the two jobs that I had were um, to pass the Lost and Stolen Firearms Bill, which was a bill to require people to report when their gun was lost or stolen uh, within 72 hours. The reason why that's important is because gun traffickers who can legally have guns um, will sell them to people that can't buy guns. And then when they're traced back to them because they were used in a crime, they say, oh, that gun was lost or stolen. So that was uh, that was an important piece of legislation. And then uh, Representative Lawler and Senator McDonald at the time asked me to help them take the lead on marriage equality at the time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, starting with the lost and stolen firearms bill and then uh, fast forwarding to Lori Jackson's law, the domestic violence gun law, You know, I thought that would be a much easier bill to pass, to be honest. I think people viscerally understand that if someone is a victim of domestic violence and they make that fateful decision to leave their abuser, that that's the most dangerous time. And that if that abuser has a firearm, you have a much stronger chance of the victim being shot or killed. And so I thought it was real common sense to to people that that person who's the abuser, ought not have a firearm during that most dangerous period. But even that bill met substantial resistance in in the House of Representatives and the Senate. We did get it through. It did pass. I'm proud over 12 years. That's that's one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of is the domestic violence gun law. Um, um, but that just shows you how powerful the NRA continues to be. And And I'll tell you, when you take on the NRA, it just feels like they're everywhere. You know, in in every congressional district and they're just they're everywhere and they're and even in Connecticut, in our state capital, um, their presence is felt and it's strong. So we'll have to push back on them. And our supporters were posting on the independent when we covered that press conference, you induced the bill. You know, a lot of people after the Parkland shooting in Florida, the massacre there, people say Connecticut's gun laws are the strongest in the state and we have had it drop. In yeah. gun deaths as a result. Yeah. The contra argument, I'll be just some of what some people wrote. Do we have a problem with bump stocks? Have we had mass shootings with bus stocks, bump stocks, robberies, murders, and mayhem from bump stocks, ghost guns? Um, do we have a problem with ghost guns here besides a single case, which may or may not have violated any laws? What was the case? Someone else wrote, how about shoelaces and rubber bands, both of which can be used to create the same rate of fire as a bump stock? These are solutions in search of problems instead of addressing root causes of gun violence this doesn't advance public safety what's the response to that that there really haven't been incidents that can be traced here to ghost guns and bump stocks so i mean that's really a basis baseless and specious argument because at the end of the day we've observed that um these instruments can do tremendous damage both a bump stock and it's not hard to imagine that that ghost guns are um a real problem and can be a real problem here in connecticut and there was a case uh in fairfield county that that i think you just referred to we don't have to wait till there's a problem mm-hmm. and we don't have to wait till somebody gets so shot we could be proactive based on what's happening well, let me places. say this yeah. you know uh 
if we had acted sooner and um, had stronger gun laws before Sandy Hook, that might have helped. And how so? What would have helped there? To well, I think the availability of AR-15s um, would have been curtailed, which was uh, the Bushmaster was used in 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 that shooting. Uh, also, we have here in Connecticut what's known as the suitability test. So there might have been the opportunity to determine whether um, Adam Lanza or his mother were, um, you know, should have been allowed to possess firearms. Um, you know, there are a number of ways. Obviously, after Sandy Hook, we limited the size of uh, uh, of magazines. Uh, we took away large capacity magazines. And so if we had if we had engaged in that conversation proactively, mm-hmm. we might have saved some lives. And I just think as a state, we have such a unfortunate relationship and tragic relationship with gun violence, a special relationship that we would that I'm sure all of us hope we didn't have mm-hmm. because of Sandy Hook. Um, I think we bear an extra responsibility to the people of this state to be even more vigilant and proactive. Uh, William Tong, you ran for the Democratic nomination for Senate in uh, 2012. Yeah. Although you didn't, I don't think you went to the convention. I right? did not. Uh, what, any lessons from that race that's going to inform your new bid for statewide office? Yeah, you know, six years later. That race uh, was really a great opportunity to get across the state and to introduce myself to people. Um, I found in that race that sharing my experience as the son of immigrants. I talked a lot about how my father was nearly deported almost 50 years ago. What was the circumstance? Um, so my dad uh, came here to Hartford, Connecticut on a tourist visa mm. and uh, overstayed the tourist visa. And one day, um, it was called INS back then, not that long ago, right? So INS showed up and said, um, you're undocumented and you've got to go. And uh, he and my mom had just opened a Chinese restaurant on Park Street in Hartford. And uh, one night he was driving home on the Berlin Turnpike and they were planning to go to Canada. And he decided to write a six-page handwritten letter to the President of the United States. What year was this? I think it was like 70. Um, so it was Richard Nixon? Yeah, it was Richard Nixon. And he sent the letter off and he didn't think anything of it, right? You would never think that you would get an answer. And before they left, the same INS agent came back to my parents' restaurant and said, the president received your letter. Um, you're going to have to go to the back of the line, um, but you're welcome to stay in this country. So they became a citizen? They became citizens after I was born. I was the first American in my family. Wow, that's a great story. Yeah. Boy, the Republic- we're very lucky. The Republican Party was different in 1970. Not only was it different, right? Can you imagine President Trump doing that today? No. <laughs> uh but the other thing that's really important about that story that I'm mindful of every day is that if life were just a little bit different, I could easily be Miriam Martinez mm-hmm. or Chris and Tony Huang in, in Farmington. We could easily be on you know, the tough end of, of, of an ice raid. And um, we're very fortunate that somebody at INS had compassion almost 50 years ago. But today... Um, if life were just a little bit different, we catch one last break, we'd be in a very different place. So the issue about sanctuary cities and sanctuary states, uh, I guess for, um, the state, the issue is secure committee communities and whether we cooperate with federal immigration agents when they want us to detain people who have not 
committed any or been accused of violent actions. This Trump administration has threatened to defund yep. local governments and state governments. There was a ruling recently, was it California, that went the way of, uh, of I guess, L.A. had sued. Yep. And Javier Becerra. Yeah, but that's, yep. that's going to keep going up to the Supreme Court. Yep. Who knows how it'll go there. What, what, as it turns out, your job would be to advise the state, right? Sure. What, what if the courts, what if the U.S. Supreme Court, which it very well could, says that the uh, Trump administration has every right to defund governments that don't agree to cooperate in immigration detainer requests? Although I guess it's going to be an issue of would that then affect just criminal justice money or general money. What's going to be your advice back based on the law? Yeah, I think it will te- depend on on how the Trump administra- administration makes its move and how it defunds us. Um, I don't think that that grant is currently being funded uh, right now, anyway. So, from a budget perspective, um, I think so you're saying we're not at risk. Of really we're not really at risk from a dollars and cents perspective. Um, but I also think we've got to stand up for who we are, right? And so, here in Connecticut, I've had a major role in helping to write and pass the Trust Act, mm-hmm. uh, which I did with a number of members of the New Haven delegation who were really the leaders on the Trust Act. We tried to strengthen the Trust Act this year. Um, and what the Trust Act basically says is that immigration enforcement is the province of the federal government, and you can't commandeer state and local law enforcement to do your jobs. And, and that's because we want people— How does it need to be strengthened? Well, right now, basically, there are um, there are circumstances, and in most circumstances, we will not cooperate with an ICE immigration detainer, um, in se- except in certain limited circumstances, and and mostly that uh, focuses around when somebody's been incarcerated or somebody has been accused uh, of a particular type of crime, um, or if they're in custody. Uh, by the Department of Corrections. So there are a number of circumstances in which um, people can be held and, and they haven't been adjudicated either by trial or they haven't been identified by judicial warrant as having really done the crime um, that they're accused of doing, or at least there's an open question. And so people are being held. And when they're being held, ICE finds out about it and they come pick them up and they deport them. You know, And what we don't want is for people... Um, to get caught up in this cycle. And we definitely don't want people to fear going to uh, a police department uh, or a hospital or a public school, right, to pick up their kids because they're fearful that there may be immigration enforcement around the corner. And and basically the Trust Act is there to to protect and defend and provide sanctuary for people here in New Haven So and you're beyond. looking to get rid of some of those exceptions? That's right, that's right. The other thing that... Uh, we really have, uh, I think, a really good opportunity on is to redefine what a misdemeanor here is in Connecticut. So under federal immigration law, a felony is uh, a penalty that captures 365 days, okay? But in Connecticut, many misdemeanors uh, are, consist of a 365-day potential sentence. And we're trying to make it 364. 364, because we want a misdemeanor in Connecticut to be a misdemeanor, not a felony, but under federal law, they consider it a felony. So we don't want to trigger federal immigration enforcement unnecessarily because, up because of one day. And they'll be showing up. So, at- so even if this issue doesn't face the next attorney general about sanctuary defunding, there is a broader issue it touches on that two of your potential opponents, because I don't know if Mike D'Agostino is in the race, 
disagreed about on these airwaves, Claire Kindle and Mike D'Agostino both eyeing this job, and that is whether their attorney general's role in giving advice to the government should explore the truest interpretation law, even if that goes against where your values are, or whether it's a quest to find legitimate interpretations that advance what you think is the right outcome. The best example was George Jefferson gave advice on whether the Constitution protects, state Constitution protects collective bargaining rights, whether sacrosanct or not. And he mostly came down with labor on that, yeah. but he said there was, here's an interpretation they can use. Republicans seized on that during the legislative debate last year. And some critics said, because unions play a big role in this nomination, said, uh, we don't want an attorney general who's going to give them fodder to, to make laws that restrict the rights of collective bargaining. So Mike D'Agostino was right on there with that. He says, you know, you got to find the legal interpretation that doesn't allow it. You don't just throw out potential interpretations that could hurt the cause. And Claire Kendall said, even though I have the labor position on this, I think it's very important that the attorney general be independent, intellectually honest, especially when you're playing the role of advice to a client. Where do you stand on that? So a couple of things. In terms of general principles, of course, I, I strongly uh, support the right of workers to organize and collectively bargain for wages and benefits as a general principle. And, and my record over 12 years proves that. I think the other issue that Representative D'Agostino was talking about is disparity in education funding, particularly racial disparities in places like New Haven and Stanford. I believe strongly that education is underfunded in this state, that there are disparities and that the ECS formula as it's currently constructed is not only unfair, but unjust. The okay. question is, though, is it unconstitutional? No, right. That's where well, that's for the state yeah. Supreme Court right. to determine, and, and, they, said it and wasn't. they said it wasn't. Here's, here's the thing. Um, the, the statute says, 3-175, that uh, the state attorney general has the obligation. It's a shall, not a may. Has an obligation to defend state agencies and state officials. Um, unless they're... Uh, I think it, I think the language is unless their doings and acts are called into question. Okay. Mm. And I think that's, that's a significant exception. Right. And so if you find yourself in a position where, you know, as a lawyer, I have an ethical duty not to advance frivolous or blatantly unconstitutional uh, or unlawful positions. And also that statute provides that if, I call into question the doings and acts of an official. Um, or what if you'd rather the state not fight at the Supreme Court level the ruling from the lower court judge, but that you yeah, thought I don't. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I think Mike and I will disagree on that. I so think, you think that you it was proper for for Jepson to say we're going to fight this at the Supreme Court? Yeah, I think I think I think the Attorney General. So what I was going to say, just to finish the thought, is that despite the fact that. You have the opportunity to object because uh, you believe a legal argument is frivolous or unconstitutional or blatantly unlawful, or you question the doings or acts of a public official. It's still a very, very high bar. You does that know? mean whatever the governor wants you to do, you got to do? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that you have to think uh, long and hard uh, about your role and your obligation to defend state agencies, including a governor. And um, it has to be a pretty extreme case where you don't do that. I will say that a blatant breach of a labor agreement without regard for the law um, is pretty extreme. I said, William Tong, you're a Democrat. Yeah. 
And if you become attorney general, yeah, sure. there's a real chance there might be a Republican governor. That's yeah. what the polls say. The first string candidates on the Democratic side bailed, jumped overboard because they thought they had no chance of winning. What if you have a Timothy Herbst or someone else who's pro-Trump? <laughs> They're the governor. They want to cooperate with secure communities. They want to uh, you know, fight any effort to, to get suburbs to pay more for education or not get as much aid. How are you going to do that job? So I think I'll do it a lot like Richard Blumenthal did. And um, he's, in the years. He's, he's a great example from the rolling years and, and the rel years. And this is where experience as a legislator makes a huge difference. Dick Blumenthal and George Jepson both trained to be attorney general on the Judiciary Committee. George Jepson was its chairman a few years before I was. Um, and what they both understood was there are several levels of opposition. One is, as I discussed earlier, going into the building, using your relationships, not just with Democratic legislators, but Republican legislators, understanding how the process works and throwing those blocks and making those tackles to stop bad legislation before it gets there. Okay, that's one thing Dick Blumenthal and George have done extraordinarily well. And uh, the second piece is, and getting back to your previous question, the attorney general, when issuing advisory opinions, and I disagree with Mike D'Agostino about this role, is not to be an advocate. You are sitting in a quasi-judicial role, and you're trying to give your best advice so you can to actually, your clients. So your role will be to give advice to, to Governor give advice. Herbst and say, I think that it that the Trust Act makes it clear and the Correct. Constitu- U.S. Constitution makes it clear that this is not the local government's job. But your advisory op- opinion can reflect also not just your interpretation of law, but also can reflect broadly your values, mm-hmm. right? And And I think that those opinions would. And then finally, of course, um, if it gets to that point, there's litigation. And and that depends on what law is passed and how it falls. And, you know, I will, will always... You, will you have to... Are you, I'm sorry, you will always... Right. You will no, always. I'll, and, and I will always take with me to, to, to those decisions, you know, my principles, which, as I said earlier, uh, a strong belief in collective bargaining and the right to organize, um, but also a strong belief in... in um, constitutional structure and my role in it all right so uh we only have a couple minutes left here sure. in Dateline, here, william tong running for democratic nomination for attorney general um in connecticut you were taught by president obama when he wasn't president obama university of chicago law yeah. school what was the course it was um constitutional law constitutional law at the university of chicago law school is separated into a few sections and his section was equal protection and due process so everything i know about Civil rights, really, from a constitutional perspective, I learned from Barack Obama. It was funny because it was an 8 a.m. class. Uh, I wish I were a better student. Um, <laughs> and he was in the middle of uh, getting crushed in a congressional primary against Bobby Rush. Against Bobby Rush. And uh, that was not a happy moment in the Obama household. But you could tell there was something really special about him. Um, and uh, it was great to see him years later when he ran for president i was the first elected official in connecticut to endorse him and and i got a chance to sit with him a couple of times and um you know he he we recalled the class and and had a few yucks about it what Um, was the class like you know the president uh is very cerebral very thoughtful um he he really encouraged us to take positions, even positions we didn't agree with, you know, um, 
when you talk about um, equal protection and due process, um, you know, those are very thorny issues. And, um, you know, the University of Chicago Law School is considered by most to be a conservative law school. So I had a lot of conservative classmates, you know, in the room with me, but he would often challenge the progressives like me to take the conservative position mm. so that, um, so that we really worked it through in our heads. And, and One I thing think I really like about Barack Obama, he really does believe in yeah. hearing all points of view. And yeah. No, you know what I miss? I miss hearing Barack Obama speak in complete sentences and paragraphs and we and, do have a, we do have a different president now. Yeah, and give Trump. cogent thoughts and ideas. As a court watcher and a observer of the, of the uh, justice system, what any predictions of how it's going to play out with Robert Mueller, the special prosecutor, and President Trump? Will we see Robert Mueller fired? Will we see a real investigation into the potential either abuses of the campaign finance system or ties to Russia? How's it, or is Rod Rosenstein going to get fired and somebody else going to fire Mueller? What's going to happen? I mean, I think uh, firing Mueller or even Rosenstein would be catastrophic for not just this president, but this country. And I think where we're headed is, you know, potential high crimes and misdemeanors. You know, I, I, I think what James Comey communicated the other night demonstrates that there's a real question about whether the president of the United States obstructed justice here. And whether he's uh, the subject of blackmail. From yeah. Russia. Yeah. And, and whether he's been compromised. So, um, I would hate to see this country have to go through that, uh, but it's hard to imagine that we're not on that course now. Mm. William Tong, it's been a real pleasure. The Thank hour you. went by quick. It went by quick. So uh, tonight, Tuesday night, you're going before the Democratic Town Committee, right? All the candidates will be there probably. You got a little speed dating. You're going to go table yeah. to table and give people the pitch about why you should get nomination. What pitch are you going to make tonight to New Haven about why you should be New Haven's candidate for I'm attorney gonna, general. I'm going to talk about my work with the New Haven delegation and how well, uh, you know, and how well connected we are on, on their priorities. So, for example, we didn't talk a lot today, Paul, about my role in criminal justice reform on the Judiciary Committee. And I had a major role in writing and passing the three major, um, um, you know, building blocks of the Second Chance Society that Governor Molly has tried to construct from the Second Chance Society law to the bail reform law, to the excessive use of force law. So I did that work uh, in concert on the Judiciary Committee uh, with many members of the New Haven delegation, um, and including Representative Walker. And so um, I look forward to talking about that tonight and um, sharing with them my experience in fighting for people in, in New Haven, and particularly those that have been prejudiced by our criminal justice system and a system of mass incarceration. William Tong, State Representative from Stanford. Co-chair of the Judiciary Committee at the Assembly and Demo candidate for the Democratic nomination for Attorney General. Thank you so much for coming on Dateline to Heaven. It really was a pleasure. Yeah, I learned a, a lot, and it was just a enjoy getting to know you a little bit along with our listeners. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks to Yellow Haven Hospital for providing uh, support for today's program. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free from the group CD. A plea for peace. Now we know what it's like to be free. We just got to remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.